We're interacting in ways that separate us. So I think getting back to basics, and that's why when you ask that beautiful question, what's life about? It's about relationships. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. If you are in or approaching midlife, if you are looking to make the most of the years you have left on this planet, today's guest is someone you might be particularly interested to learn from. Her name is Barbara Waxman. She is the author of The Middle Essence Manifesto, Igniting the Passion of Midlife. Barbara is somebody I got connected with after I interviewed Chip Conley, the founder of Modern Elder Academy. And I'm so glad I did. Barbara is the leading authority on middle essence and a passionate advocate for aging, wisdom, and thriving in midlife and beyond. She's one of the only gerontologist coaches in the United States. She's been featured on CBS This Morning, Ariana Huffington's Thrive Global. She holds coaching certifications from the ICF and the Hudson Institute. She blogs for HuffPost 50, Next Avenue, and Viber Nation. Barbara is somebody that I wanted to talk to because I really do think Barbara is an X-level thinker in that she has seen something AKA the stage of life that she's calling middle essence, which we talk about in the course of the interview. You realize adolescence was made up. Barbara has just given a name to a stage that we go through. Then we have more ability to navigate it powerfully. This is something that many other people have seen, but she's recognized in a different way. And I think we've suffered because of it as a society, as a culture, not having a name for the experience that we all go through, what to make of it. What we've previously thought of as midlife crisis, Barbara sees instead as an incredible opportunity for growth, self-expression, contribution, the opportunity to reinvent ourselves and the roles that we have in our lives, our families, and our communities. We talk about finding joy and passion. We talk about purpose, what Barbara calls purpose with a little p, purpose with a big p, how they're different, how they're related. We talk about self-care. I love Barbara's view that self-care is a revolutionary act. She tells us what she means by that. She also leads us through something that she calls the five essentials. It's really a very logical way of looking at the different areas of our lives, exploring how we can live more intentionally and better. I love Barbara's view of energy, the energy that each of us have on any given day, how to manage it well. And in this conversation, Barbara dispels the myth of the midlife crisis. She also introduces the idea of taking a gap year as an adult. Couldn't you use a gap year right about now? You can learn more about Barbara and her work at barbarawaxman.com, and you can take her 25-question quiz, which she calls the Five to Thrive quiz, at that website as well. Please enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Barbara Waxman. Barbara, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad you're here. And Barbara, I'm hoping that you will tell me, please, what is life about? Good question. And actually, here's an easy answer. 
And the answer came from a long, long time ago in a book that most of us are familiar with. It comes from the story of Genesis. You know, the story of Genesis. Sure. Adam and Eve, you know, we were told from the very beginning, no matter what belief system you have, it's all about relationships. So life is about relationship, being in relationship with ourselves because we're worth it, right? And being in relationship with one another. I think that's what life's about. Yeah. I love that perspective. Thank you for sharing that. I want, I want to jump right into a discussion about Mr. Stanley Hall. (laughs) And I love language. And speaking of Genesis, the beginning was the word, right? And how we create words. And with those words that we create, we understand ourselves and life and others differently. Life is forever changed. But will you talk for a moment about who Stanley Hall was and why a word in particular that he made up matters so much? Yes. Language and semantics are so important because once we can name something, we're in relationship with it. And once we're in relationship with something or someone or some concept, we can manage that if we understand it. And Stanley Hall understood this. So in the early 1900s, a little over a century ago, for various social, economic, physical, political reasons, he recognized that there was a stage of life that was created that was new. And that was what we now call adolescence. It didn't exist before. And even someone like myself, a gerontologist, I study life stages The fact that he developed and named out of thin air, so to speak, adolescence, and that's where it came from, kind of shocked me because I was under this assumption, like so many of us are, that adolescence is a thing. Of course it is. It's a stage. Uh, And so he gave us a big gift because the minute I say the word adolescence, you get a hit, right? You understand, oh, it's a challenge. Yeah, that's a hard time. (laughs) It's a hard time. And we do goofy things, but then... We can do that. We're supposed to because it's normal, even though it's hard. Yeah, to me, that's so remarkable. And it's an interesting, again, you know, coincidence or synchronicity that a guest I just interviewed, he is a member, he's Aborigine from Australia. And he talked about this very thing in his book, a book called Sand Talk. And he talks about the creation of this concept and this word adolescence. And prior to that, that we didn't have this idea. And in a lot of indigenous societies, it's literally you're a child and there's a ritual or some kind of a ceremony, and then you're a man or you're a woman. And it's boom, it's literally one day. And there's, for some people, it's ritual scarification or it's some kind of a vision quest or engagement with the plant medicine or something like that. But here we made this very different. And there's a whole history that we, we won't endeavor to delve into all of it, but you touched on a little bit of it. But what I love about your work is that in the same way that a hundred years ago and how much changes in a hundred years that, you know, we saw a need as a society for this new stage of life. Here we are in the present moment seeing that on a lot of levels, life isn't working very well, societally, globally, individually. And you're now leading the conversation to the creation of a new word or the identification of a new life stage that I think could really help make life work better. What is it and why are you doing it? Thank you so much for asking. First of all, I'm doing this work around naming life's newest stage because I know how much it will make a difference in people's lives. And just like naming adolescence was. So what happens now is 
around the time adolescence was named, people lived, life expectancy was about 47 years old. Today, it's in our 80s. And if we don't smoke, if we try to manage our stress, we exercise and engage in things that will enable us to stay well longer, we can expect to live longer than that. So what's happened? Where are those three decades that we've added gone? Our default thinking is that there are three more decades at the end. I'm going to be older longer. But that's not really where they show up. They show up smack dab in the middle of life. And yet we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to call it. So I have named this new life stage middle essence. It's like a second adolescence. But this time with the wisdom we've gained from our lives to reassess. And it's kind of a challenging stage, but it's normal. That's my point. Yeah. So middle essence, I'm getting the sense that, okay, it's in the middle of life. I'm struck by, and I, I don't think this would have occurred to me, but I love how there really are a lot of parallels to adolescence, mm-hmm. right? That our bodies change, our roles and responsibilities are often changing at that stage in our life as well. What else is similar between middle essence and adolescence? In adolescence, we have this identity shift. I'm not a little kid, but I'm not a grown up. In middle essence, we have an identity shift. I'm not young, but I'm not old. And we have to figure out what this central part can be. In adolescence, we start to change what we care about, right? I I used to care about little kid things and games, and now I have a different consciousness, and I want to be more of a teenager and what teenagers do, et cetera. In middle essence, we look at the earlier parts of our lives when, as David Brooks has said, we're working on our resume virtues. I may not love this part so much, but I've got to build up my skills in this or that. I don't care what it takes. I don't care if I lose sleep. Here's what I need to do. In middle essence, that identity shifts and we start to say, okay, what are my eulogy virtues? We start to not count time from birth forever, but start saying, with the time left, I want to have meaning and purpose in my life, even if I may make a little less money. So there's this this shift in that way. So those are a couple of examples. Yeah, no, th- thanks for sharing that. And and again, I think one of the things that I find fascinating, okay, I'm going to stay with this topic of, because you talk about David Brooks and this, I love this resume, virtues or values and in eulogy values. And I'm reminded of, I'm a, I'm a part of a group of entrepreneurs and every year we take like a retreat somewhere and, and we look at both our personal professional lives. And one year we agreed that one of the activities we would do is we would all write our obituary. We'd write our own obituary and then we would share it and we'd have the experience of having been thoughtful and deliberate. And then we'd have the experience of whatever reflection the group would give back. And I didn't do it. Like I I still, to this day, when I look at it, I don't know why I didn't, but I, I know that looking toward the end of our life can be daunting. And especially as we hit this stage of life of middle essence, where we've probably got just about as much time left or maybe a little less in our lives than we've just lived that there can be this, um, I don't know, fear or concern or this sense of confusion or doubt. And we see this too, right? With suicide rates and depression and anxiety that's, that's going on in our society. Let me just ask you, I kind of, I'm going in two directions because one, I personally would love to pick your brain on what's that about and what have you seen in your coaching with gerontology on people facing, looking into that darkness. But I'm also interested to ask you, so I want to take the conversation this way, if it's okay with you, which is what is going on? 
like what it seems to me in my learning and my personal experience that we are facing an unprecedented mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. And I suspect the lack of appreciation for what you're talking about is a big part of that. But I wonder what's your take on that? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to answer that question. But first, I've got to say something about this obituary exercise that you did. <laughs> okay. Because there are two things. One is a little weird secret about, you know, we all have our own little things that we like to do. And people say, really? I love to read obituaries. My mom does too. I said to her, mom, why are you, why do you always read the obituaries? And she would say, and I think she was serious. She said, I just want to make sure I'm not in them. (laughs) I was like, what? But why do you love to read obituaries? I am inspired all the time when by, by everyday people and by their journey and about what is, has been important to them and what they've accomplished. And so I think obituaries are awesome and fascinating and reading them today as middle essence is so important to help us understand who we want to be when we grow up, because the truth is we're still growing up. So that's the yeah. first part. The yeah. other thing I would shift for your entrepreneurs group, maybe to make it a little more accessible is I ask people to write themselves a letter from their 100 year old self. Mm, I like what that. Do you want yourself to know today. And what happens is we have our inner wizards, our inner wise ones right here in our intuition, in our gut. And it enables us to kind of access that. I went through this exercise when I was in my coaching training program. And I have to admit, I've been in California for over 35 years, but originally I'm a New Yorker. And so before I even got into coaching, and I didn't go back for my certification and become a coach until I was in my 40s, I thought coaching sounds really soft. What the heck is that? <laughs> so when I went through this program, I was very skeptical about some of the exercises. And one of them was this write yourself a letter, it was called. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is one of those quote, coachy exercises, blah, blah, blah. And I'm putting up all these mental barriers. And then basically they kept coming by, how are you doing? And I was really stuck and they said, just do it. And when I finally said to myself, okay, and I took some breaths and I went into my 90 or 100 year old self, the tears started flowing as I kind of spoke lovingly to myself. Then I was, I think, 43. And I knew everything I wanted to say. Wow. So That's beautiful. It's very, it was very powerful for me. Yeah. That, that does feel, I love that even that word way more accessible. Like I, I could, I think I could pretty easily do that, but there's something about an obituary that just felt really daunting, but this feels much more empowering. So thank you for that. All right. So let me get back to your question about mental health crisis. And of course, I have a lot to say about that as well. One, we live in a country where we are so used to, and some of it is media, some of it is our healthcare system, that we go to prescription drugs as uh, well, this will help. And it is helpful. There, are, there is an important place. I don't want to make it sound like I don't agree with Western medicine. There is a place and a time. My point is we go there way too fast when it comes to mental anguish. I lived in Italy for a year. And you know what? Their culture around all of this, people aren't on the drugs we are. It's just different. So I think one one part is we need to look at the culture and the communities that we put ourselves in when we're under a tremendous amount of stress and say, what's working for me and what's not? And for some of my clients, you know, I coach people who are running companies. I coach people who are having a hard time making ends meet. So I coach the range of people. 
regardless, we all have to ask ourselves, what's the environment that's going to allow me to be my healthiest, best self? And how can I afford to get there? Because I also don't want to ignore the economic realities that a lot of us face. So I think the mental health crisis is real. I think another, so that's one part. And the other thing I'd say is before COVID, I speak all over the country and I would tell groups that our number one health crisis is not cancer or stroke, it's social isolation. We can be, quote, with other people, but really very much alone because we're so much in front of our screens. We're interacting in ways that separate us. So I think getting back to basics, and that's why when you ask that beautiful question, what's life about? It's about relationships. And we lose sight of that at our own peril. No, I I think you're absolutely right. And again, that's ancient wisdom that we've managed to forget in the and the paradox of being in some ways more connected than we've ever been, but being more isolated and lonely, you know, than than we've ever been as far as we know. Right. Thank you for your for for your view on that. I want to go to something you talked about in the work you do and what middle essence often entails is this search for purpose. The search for meaning, the search for contribution, often accompanied by a reinvention of one's of who one knows oneself to be. And I really love the way you talk about purpose because I know for many people it can be daunting. It can be this big thing that why don't I have it figured out or how will I know when I do? And in no surprise with that kind of I would almost say misunderstanding of what purpose is, people many people never seem to find or live it. But how do you like to think about purpose? I like to think about joy and passion, J plus P equals P equals purpose, because the word purpose has become so loaded that when we think about, you know, how do you feel about your purpose? What's your purpose? People shut down. They, they're they like blinded in the light and they think, I'm not Mother Teresa. I can't save the world. And instead they feel less than. Yeah. So I've broken it down into big P purpose and little P purpose, and they are both exceedingly important. And little P purpose are things that bring us joy. So for me, during COVID, in fact, it's been healing to be able, I love to garden, to walk out in my garden, to tend to some things, to pull up a few carrots. And it brings me a sense of purpose and health and wellness Is it healing the world? No. But is it life-changing for me? Yes. It sets me on course for a better day so I can be of service to people. So there's little P purpose that shows up in, in different ways. And when people are stuck, I don't even know what that could be for me. Do something for someone else. One small thing, even if it's a compliment, right? If we're not together with one another, how can you say one thing that's positive to someone else? Do something that makes you smile. So that's little P purpose. And it evolves in sneaky ways to be your big P purpose. So again, for example, when I was younger, when I I have three kids, 30, 28, and 24, and when they were little, I would struggle as a working mom with how much work I'm doing, how to be the best mom I could be. And it was a constant dynamic. And I don't know if any of your listeners can relate as a women or as a parent. And when my daughter was eight years old, and for all the parents out there, or if you remember your eighth birthday, she wanted to leave her birthday party and go home and rest. And she was the most redhead, rambunctious person, always has been. So I had that 
epiphany, something is seriously wrong. And she was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. She's now 25. She just got married in our front yard. She's fabulous. She's her whole body, even though Western medicine, sort of the view was you, she needed surgery. Anyway, that's another story for maybe another day. But my point, when that happened, unexpectedly, my big P purpose, I was not consumed with what's more important, work or my kids. I was not consumed with what is my purpose. I stopped work for two years outside of, I mean, I was working to find a cure for her. So that's what I mean. Purpose can sneak up on you when you're open to it. And when you recognize, like for a long time, I didn't realize, whoa, that was my purpose. Yeah, It makes sense till I started doing more of this work and reflecting on it. So you may be having big P purpose in your life that you're not even calling purpose. I think that's really common actually. And I think that partly because my dad, he passed away now 11 years ago in 2009, but he would tell my mom very often, he, he would say, I, you know, even though he was a very successful business person, he would say, he would say to her, I think I'm being groomed. Like, you know, basically I think God is preparing me for one grand act. And he said that for years and years and years. And then when the end came, we knew, you know, it wasn't just a heart attack and he died one day. It was a pretty, pretty rapid decline, but we knew the end was coming. And at any rate, at the end of his life, he said to her, I don't think that there was one grand act after all. I think it was what I did all along the way. Wow. And so I think it's very common that people have this conception that someday, you know, I'm going to be called to something or I'm going to make my contribution. But meanwhile, I think we're making it very often all along the way, but we don't, we don't recognize it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your view on that. And something you said too, I think this is one of my experiences as a coach. And and I wonder if you've seen something similar in your work is that a lot of people who, who come to me who are looking for their purpose, they very often seem to be depleted. Like they've been doing the thing where they've been giving, giving, giving so much, taking care of a family or earning an income or just trying to you know pay the bills. And one of the things that I've seen is that if they simply start to do things, like I love what you're saying, these little P, the things that bring you joy, the things that encourage your health and wellness, that you'll more easily notice the big P purpose when it comes along. But I love what you say in your work that self-care becomes more important as we get older, mm-hmm. right? And, and so I see this, this commonality of people looking for purpose who aren't taking care of themselves and then this need for self-care at an even greater level as we get older. Why is that? Why is self-care so important as we, as we age? When we're younger, and by younger, I actually mean younger than 35, which is super young, that's when our physical bodies are kind of peaking in terms of what's called our vital capacity, our ability to take in oxygen and really stress ourselves physically. After a certain age, physically, we can stay in great shape. There are people running marathons in their 80s, but from a cellular biological level perspective, we start to age. And so we give up some physical, now there's a lot of study around antioxidants and helping ourselves stay healthier and more vital longer, but it's still a truth. There's a yin and a yang, right? There's a balance to everything. And what we have to recognize is, yes, we give some of that up. And what we gain is wisdom and hopefully enough wisdom to recognize, oh, so I'm 57. At 57, I need to cultivate my energy more carefully than ever because it's still there. I just need to cultivate it in ways that work for me. So for me, I have meditation practice. I 
exercise to the point that I push myself, but I'm not so depleted that I'm falling apart. My husband, he exercises until, you know, he just works out like crazy and I could never keep up with him, but it brings him joy and more energy. So my point in that is we have to do what works for us. Right. There's a misconception about self-care. Self-care is not selfish. In fact, self-care, I would say, is a revolutionary act. All of the people who are fighting injustice, for example, if they don't take care of themselves to handle the stress coming at them, the negativity, they need to be able to focus so they can articulate a response and action or verbal like communication. So I would make the argument that self-care is revolutionary. And without it, we can't accomplish, in your father's case, what he was put here for, which is the long game, which is yeah. to be here and show up every day in the best way possible. Yeah. No, I, I really, I appreciate that view. And I'm, I'm glad that you're actively sharing that in the world. Because, you know, when I was 18, I thought 30 sounded old. <laughs> and then I got to be 30 and I didn't think 50 sounded old anymore. And when my dad died at 64 years old, I was angry. I actually was angry. I was, I was angry at him a bit because I thought, man, if he had made different choices, he could have still been here. And, you know, that's maybe a selfish thing to be angry. But I thought I never really got the time with him that I wanted, you know, selfishly. And, and he really gave his life energy to his work at the expense of his health and, and some other, you know, relationships and things. But, you know, clearly we all, we all get to make our choices, but I'm glad that you're, I'm glad that you're, you know, raising this banner about self-care because I know, you know, from having lost a dad to really lifestyle choices, that it's a very important, it's a very important issue. And powerful. And I try to be really practical and give people practical tools to use because some people are like, I need to show up at work every day. I have a commute. And so I just want to make the point, it's not about over self-care. Pampering oneself is of privilege, right? And we can't all do that. But self-care to the point that we have to make choices. And it doesn't mean in every, there are five areas that I call the five essential elements that I've studied over a decade of what are those five areas. So I keep it simple that people can address so that they can be wholly exuberant and well. And most these things don't really cost money. What's, what tends to be the most expensive actually is shockingly for some people, healthy food. Yeah. It's much cheaper to buy junk food. And a lot of people don't even live near places they can access healthy food. So that's a challenge for for people, but the five essential elements kind of helps people simply unlock the key to simple steps to help them. So t- let's talk about those for a moment because I'm really struck by how life is simple, but we make it complicated, right? And I love, I just came across this quote by Oprah Winfrey about the big secret in life is there is no big secret, yeah. right? That things really are pretty, pretty basic. And, and as I read your five essentials, I saw that like none of these was like, it's not a new scientific formula, right? But they all, I think are foundational in living a great life. What, will you just talk about what they are and why you settled on these five? Yes. I often say, like you're saying, brilliant, it's not rocket science. And yet a lot of the people I work with, they have PhDs and they say, oh, I know this, but it's so hard to do. 
Yeah. Yeah. The knowing doing gap, that darn, that, <laughs> not, that, that gap. That's true. Knowing it isn't enough. <laughs> um, the first and most foundational area is health and nutrition. So we are what we eat. And that's why I brought up for some people, it's a real challenge to have healthful foods, but being conscious of it mm. is extremely important. The other thing is we should all know our baseline health status. A lot of people have underlying conditions they're not even aware of. So keeping their blood pressure in, in check, being at a healthy weight, and much of this are, are things that people know. So I don't say, are you within this weight zone? I say to people, are you at a healthy weight? So they make that choice for themselves because another part of health and nutrition and I don't know if you noticed this brilliant, is the question, do you have a healthy body image? Because so many of us, more so women than men, but men as well as middle essence, our bodies morph, I call it. They, they betray us. They betray us. They yeah. change in ways that like in adolescence, they get more awesome. And now it's kind of like, okay, you got to work a lot harder for that. But mindset is everything. And so our mindset about our physical body and how we show up is something that we need to attend to. Okay, yeah. so the first area is health and nutrition, and I have five questions that I ask on the, the Five to Thrive quiz. The second area is rest and renewal. So we, as human beings, are probably the only, uh, how do I want to say this, growing natural renewable resource left on the planet. We're using everything else up, but we are renewable, yet we treat ourselves like computers. You know, a lot of people think, I've got to make it to the end of the week, or I've got to make it to vacation, and then I'll reboot. We even use yeah. some of that language, or yeah. I hope I don't crash. We use the language of the technology that imprisons us in many ways, but the truth is, we're cyclical beings. We breathe in cycles, we sleep in cycles, we eat in cycles. So what if we treated ourselves, our rest and renewal in ways that allow us to be f renewed and wake up and start our day and know how to use our energy? Okay. So number one, health and nutrition. Number two, rest and renewal. Number three, joy and passion. We talked about number four, focus and growth. One of the greatest fears that people have about their aging is losing their memory, losing their cognition and ability to be independent. And so we have a lot of ageist jokes. And I believe that ageism, which is probably going to be one of the last isms to fall, because it's an arrow we point at ourselves. Oh, I'm having a senior moment, right? Senior moments, yes, things slow down because we have more in our head. So it's like a little filing cabinet we need to look through and it takes a little more time. But we need to keep our acuity really, really sharp. And so in order to do that, we need to meditate. Brilliant. You said you, I think you have a meditation practice. Do you find that you think more clearly and sharply when you've meditated? Absolutely. And not just, not just my conscious thought process, but I feel like I have access to intuition in a way that I wouldn't if I just allowed myself to wake up and start doing things like I used to. Mm, absolutely. Intuition, which really means you're connecting your head, your heart, and your gut, whether you know it or not, when you're meditating. And if it was an equation and we add those three things, that's your intuition, allowing your whole self to have this deep knowing. 
So that that's beautiful. Uh, yeah. So focus and growth is the fourth area. And the last area, and I believe that the five to thrive quiz is the only one that has time as its own module because so much of what we are challenged by is our what we think is our time management. And as a coach, a lot of people, especially people running multinational companies, they'll say, Barbara, we need to work on time management. And I will say to them, that's not the question because you can't manage time. Einstein showed us with the theory of relativity, time warps, right? All we can do, and it's a real shift, is manage the energy we have, that focus, that acuity, that physical sense of really being present in the time available. So the questions that I ask in that area, and they're just five, is helping, are helping people understand what they want to do and when they want to do it. So one example is if I have a crucial conversation that I'm putting off, I want to talk to you about something really challenging and I know it's, it's going to be dicey. I'm liable to get other things, get the low-hanging fruit, get these things off my list. And yet, I don't know about you, for most people like me, our energy is best in the earlier part of the day. But yep. what happens is I'm going to get around to that conversation with you, middle, probably around three o'clock when my energy is lowest, as is yours. Yep. What I've used up, what I say to people is your energy focus, all of that is not an ocean, it's a reservoir. Mm -hmm. Don't treat it like an ocean it gets sucked dry by the end of the day. So when it's full, do the most challenging thing, first thing in your day. And I can tell you, working with people in all kinds of industries, made a huge, they've said, people have said to me, oh my gosh, we've hired as a company so many time management ex experts to come in and do trainings. And this idea and this work around using our energy in the best possible ways is really the ticket. So those are the five areas. I love that. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. And I know you mentioned this, but haven't talked much about it is what you refer to the five to thrive quiz, this series of 25 questions. Somebody can go to your website, barbawaxman.com and take that and see for themselves just how well they're thriving or not. Yes. Is that right? How long does it take somebody to take that? And if they do what, I mean, beyond the awareness they might cultivate, then what do they have a call with you or someone on your team? What happens? Great question. So, the, and by the way, I give it away for free. The only time I license it is when other coaches want to use it with their clients, which I love because I think it's very powerful. So if someone is using it professionally, then I sort of have a trust system and I license it to them. And I find that people in the coaching business are very trustworthy, but yeah. I give that away for free. So then people can also download what's called an activation guide. So I try to give this away. So that people don't necessarily need to hire me or another coach. But oftentimes having a strategic thought partner is very important. So I, I take on clients. I work both as an executive coach with people running companies using me professionally and sometimes just like a life coach. And so I may meet with people three times or four times. I mean, it's not a forever thing to help them get their grounding, create the plan, and then they're off and running and may want to come back for a tune-up a couple of times a year. That's all. Yeah. That's, that's so powerful. And as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, you know, where none of this is particularly complicated, but there are things that get in the way for all of us. And there's 
as human beings, there's commonalities, there are patterns and similarities between us, but every one of our lives is unique. Therefore, you know, what's in the way for each of us is a bit unique. And to have somebody who is, I like to say, you know, who's a coach who's in our corner, but not in our drama, who can help us gain that perspective and see things we couldn't see or make, be an accountability partner, like all these things is so valuable. So that's awesome. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that and walking us through this. I often call myself a, a loving truth teller. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's, I think every one of us could benefit from having, no matter how many we might have in our lives, we can always benefit from having an, one more loving truth teller in our, in our life. <laughs> that's great. Okay. So I think the only other thing that I want to be sure to ask you about here and I realized you might have something more that we have. Oh, and we haven't talked about the Middle Essence Manifesto. I definitely want to talk about that. But I want to talk about a piece of research that you that you point to that I find really, what's the word, hopeful, like I'm, is that we seem to get happier as we age, mm-hmm. right? There seems to be this dip. And yeah. then we get, a lot of us get miserable. Many people do, in fact, choose to end their lives, sadly. But if we get through that and get beyond research shows that we get a little happier. I haven't experienced that myself yet, but what can you tell us from your experience, your practice and your research? So I want to tie it into this myth around the midlife crisis. And I, I choose the word myth carefully because a myth is something that is widespread and ingrained as myth culturally. And so we talk about the midlife crisis as though it's a crisis. Part of what people need to understand when they understand this kind of happiness journey, fulfillment journey across life, is that this is a myth. When we, going back to the adolescence conversation, when we talk about adolescence, we're not saying, oh, they're in crisis. We say, oh, developmentally, they're going to be an adolescent soon. Just wait. It's going to be challenging, but they'll be okay. Yep. I want to normalize this challenging part where we get to And it can be more than once. When I was in my 40s, I went back. I did a two-year fellowship in leadership development. Then I went back for certification in coaching. And this was after I already had two master's degrees that I got in my 20s. So what was that about? I wasn't in crisis, but I was saying, you know what? I've got a long life ahead of me and I'm finding this whole new area I want to expand into. So I'm going to cycle back into education and out of work while I'm doing that and then cycle back and bring that into work. And it wasn't, as I said, a crisis. It was more a recognition that this midlife stage is really important. Then when I was in my 50s, uh, and I'm still in my 50s, I thought, you know what? I'm gonna take a gap year because it's wasted on youth. Um, I can enjoy it more than anyone else. And so my husband and I went to Italy, lived on a mountainside for a year and learned so much. We got the perspective on our lives in ways that we wouldn't have if we had stayed within our culture. So this myth of the middle. Sorry, just to jump in. That sounds so romantic. Did you take the kids? (laughs) No, 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 no. That was the idea. The idea was for years we had been worried and thinking, not not worried, but sad, planning to be sad when we became empty nesters. And so started as kind of a a joke. Oh, we'll go to Italy for a year and we'll take a gap year when the kids are gone. Somehow became reality. And no one believed we would do it because everyone says people talk about that, but they never really do it. So then we would thought, okay, we're going to make this happen. And it was romantic. We also had a lot to learn about ourselves and our relationship because 
we had been years where we're raising kids, we're each working. And now it was the two of us on a mountainside. <laughs> and it wow. was great. But right, it, it really has you revisit your relationship. I call it repotting. It was like, there comes a time, again, not a crisis, but when our roots, if, you, if you've ever repotted a plant and you see the roots are pushing against the pot itself, and you don't realize that until you take it out and you replant in new soil so that the roots can grow and you add fertilizer and nutrients. Well, that's sort of how we envisioned. We picked ourselves up from our culture here. Our kids visited us twice. We limited how many other friends could visit us because just spoiler alert for anyone who wants to go. If you plan to go to Italy for a year, everyone becomes your best friend because they all want to visit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but we really wanted to just befriend Italians, speak Italian. So we would really grow in different ways and then come back kind of flourishing in different areas. And in fact, it wasn't until I was in Italy working on learning from the feet of my life and my career about what I'd seen as a gerontologist and a coach. That's where I came up with Middle Essence and came wow. back, published the small manifesto, and it's it's kind of taken off from there. So this myth of the midlife crisis and choosing ways, you don't need to go on a trip. You can repot your thinking by exposing yourself to different kinds of reading and learning. You can repot your habits. You know, you take the five essential elements quiz and say, all right, how do I want to shift up in ways that's going to serve me more going forward? So I think I got away from your, the, your, original. No, that's, I love hearing that, you know, reframing, you know, the midlife crisis and, and talking about it as, is something that's broadly accepted, but it doesn't have to be. And then, and then really where, what was also, I think how we got on that thread of conversation was asking about, um, no, it was, what was it that I asked? Well, it was, oh, it was about happiness. It was about how happiness, right? That was it, how it dips. And then it comes back for research shows for many, many people later in life. So yes, this idea of happiness, I was tying to the fact that we, there's this myth around the midlife crisis. It's supposed to be a time where we struggle a little bit and or maybe a lot, and change and grow. But why is that? So international research, international, so some things I say are uniquely American, this is not, shows that we're happy in our teens and 20s, although it can be dicey, in our 30s, and it starts to dip, starts to dip, it starts to dip. And it's interesting, it's around those resume virtue years. It's the years where we're pushing, not necessarily about what do we care about most, but it's make, quote, making it in the world. It's what do I need to do to boost my career? It's if, if people are parents, it's the slog of working and being a parent, which is fulfilling. People wouldn't report that they wouldn't change it, but are they the happiest years? Not really, because it's a lot, there's a lot going on. So that starts to get us depleted and less happy. And it bottoms out at around 47, 48 years old. And something very interesting happens there. Laura Karstensen, who's at Stanford University, she's a psychologist. She talks about FTP, future time perspective. And I think it's around this period where we start to shift from I have all the time in the world and there's a lot of stressors going on and is this all there is and I failed and maybe I'll never make it. We shift from that around this middle lesson stage to, you know what, on balance, things aren't so bad. In the time left, it just, everything tastes a little sweeter. 
I have a, more, a greater sense that whatever I am involved with, I've got to connect to heading toward those eulogy virtues. Not that we're heading toward death, but more of that idea of I want more meaning and purpose in my life. And even though we give up some of that physical prowess we talked about when we were talking about our energy and our need to cultivate it more now and how that can be kind of stressful. I mean, look, I'm mentioning all these great things that I've been able to do and I used to travel before COVID and I'm speaking all over and I'm working with awesome people. Meanwhile, I needed a hip replacement. So I'm rocking titanium down my leg. You know, we, we have the technology. So could have gone in with the mindset I'm getting old. I need a new hip. I can't do things. My mindset was use the technology. So what people like me find is even in spite of the challenges associated with aging, we're happier. And happiness actually, according to the U-curve that anyone can Google, U-curve of happiness, happiness increases until the end of life. People have a greater appreciation for every day. Yeah, that is, that is great news. <laughs> I'm I'm really glad I was I was glad to read that in in the Middle Essence Manifesto. Let's talk about that for a moment. So this is the second book you've written. First book was about retirement, mm-hmm. right? And this one is called The Middle Essence Manifesto: Igniting the Passion of Midlife. Clearly, we've talked about a lot of the ideas that are contained in this work. But why did you write it? There were a lot of other things you could have done with your time, but instead you wrote a book, and now you're spreading the message, which I'm glad you are. But but why? So uh, first, let me just say the first book, I was special editor and helped pull together. It was different than we did a lot of interviews in that. So I was special editor as opposed to single author of that book. Not that that really matters, but I always like to be very precise about taking responsibility or not for things. So why the Middle Lessons Manifesto? Well, as I mentioned, when I was in Italy, it became crystal clear to me that what I was hearing from people, as I mentioned earlier, people with a lot of money, people without money, it's not associated with economic status. It's like adolescence. You can go through it in all kinds of ways, but everyone goes through it. We have added this new life stage. And I felt like it's so important because I have been in the quote aging world. And for people who aren't in that world, they're surprised like, what is the aging world? And it's the world associated with healthcare with assisted living, with all kinds of things related to aging. So there are conferences, there are all kinds of industries associated with aging. And that's what I consider to be the aging world. And as a gerontologist, I would go to a lot of these things. And I realized that midlife is the stepchild to no one because it's not really in the aging world because we're not suffering old. And certainly people who are younger are like, yeah, that's not me. So I realized, wow, those, you know how I said earlier, those years, those decades we've added aren't at the end, they're in the middle and no one's known what to do with it. I thought about it, like if I was a doctor, I would diagnose our country in particular as suffering from cultural lagosis, which sounds awful. I wouldn't, you know, wish it on my worst enemy. And it's sort of a funny Latin way of saying a cultural lag. We're lagging behind the reality of how we live our lives. And no one else has really been in this space. When you think about it, and I I know this because I'm in this world, and Chip Connolly, my good friend and colleague, got involved because he felt this inner rumbling when he worked 
at Airbnb and he felt both like a mentor and an intern. And what was that? And so he started this awesome midlife wisdom school called the Modern Elder Academy that I'm fortunate to teach at. I teach something called the Consciously Curated Life with Chip. We have a lot of fun doing it and it's a great week. So there are a few people, very few, probably you could count them on one hand, who are saying midlife is so important, we've got to put it on the map. So I've done that by naming the stage and through the, the work that I'm trying to do because mid, midlife people, middle essence, still have the energy if we cultivate it. We have the wisdom from our lived experiences if we revisit those to be great leaders. And boy, our world needs us more than ever. Yeah, for sure. Somebody's got to <laughs> step up, I think. No, thank, thank you for sharing that. Well. Before we transition to the enlightening lightning round, what haven't we talked about that you want to talk about or you think might be of benefit to those listening? I, I want to put in another plug about this leadership point because we are suffering as a world with COVID. I mean, when you think about it, Mother Earth said, it's time. You know, I'm going to, there's been such hubris about a virus can't take us down. And Mother Earth needed a rest from pollution. When you look at these pictures of the world from orbiting satellites, the world is getting cleaned up. There's so much good that's happened from this global timeout, but it's also caused a lot of pain and it's caused an economic reckoning that we're going to be feeling for quite a long time. And it's also perhaps needed to happen so that social justice areas that we have been able to be so busy And when I say busy, I'm using it like a four-letter word that we could look the other way or think, well, I know I'm a good person, so I'm not part of that, right? So we go on and we know we're good. So we figure in my little sphere, we're all pretty nice and we're good. So I'm going to keep going. And COVID has stopped us because we can't look away. So the other thing I want to say is for all the people who might be listening and the people that you work with and doing the good work with your coaching company, lead from your chair. I guess I'm, I'm sending out a call to arms to say, lead from your chair. You don't need to be in a position in a company. You can lead yourself. How can I show up to be a light in the world every day, even if it's just a smile because people need it? Or how can I lead my family? Because here's a system. So I mentioned before, I have three now grown kids who are in relationships. So it's exponential as a matriarch. And I think that we need to bring back the matriarchy. I have a lot of influence in the world just by leading my family. So someone who might see themselves in their family, you're a leader in your community, your company. So I guess for right now, what's on my mind, if you were to say, Barb, what's on your mind that's important for people to know? It's that every single one of us has the ability to have an impact that's going to be positive in the world. And I want to encourage every one of us to do it in any small way. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Well, and that did bring up one other thing that I that I want to ask you about. I understand that in addition to living in Italy and having traveled extensively, that you've also been involved in some leadership work in India. Is that right? Will you talk a little bit about that? Right before COVID started, when we were reading about it. So all of February, I was in Italy. I mean, sorry, in India. Sounds like I like countries with I. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, it actually... I consider it more of a study trip than a leadership trip. We were focusing on learning 
about ending child marriage in India. One out of every four girls, and I say girls because they're as young as 12 to under 20, is married off against her will without having an education or say in it. And so we were meeting with justice fellows who are grassroots leaders in India. And we were actually meeting with some of the young women and learning kind of the revolutionary ways that first of all, they practice self-care because without being strong themselves and knowing and learning the skills then to negotiate with the men in their lives who don't want to let them out of the house. So how can you even make a difference? And these organizations convince the fathers in general to let the girls out of the house because they're going to get training that will help bring money back back home. And then the girls learn negotiation skills so they can go back home and say, if I can have one more year of school and not get married for one more year, I can do this. So the, the leadership was really, I'm a lifelong learner and I needed to really put myself in the environment to understand more than reading about it from here, what's happening and maybe how I could help. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. What part of India were you traveling in, by the way? In the North, we were in mostly around Delhi. Right on. I have this idea that when I'm 60, I want to walk across India, but we'll see. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I, I want to go to Bhutan. You know what, what they do in Bhutan? Oh, the, I've read a little bit about, that's where happiness, right? They're measuring. They measure, and I, I have to learn more about it, but they measure their GDP in terms of happiness. So I thought, okay, that's where I want to go when I'm 60, which is coming up. So I better figure it out. <laughs> yeah. You, you got a bit of time still. But not much. Not much. Awesome. Okay. Well, with that, let's transition our conversation to the enlightening lightning round. Does that work for you? Absolutely. How are you doing, by the way? You good? I'm good. Good. Okay. All right. So with this series of questions, again, it's uh, each question is relatively brief. My intention is to ask them and for the most part, just stand aside. I might pull on a couple threads here and there, but by and large, I'll keep us moving through it pretty efficiently. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Life is like a a carousel. Okay. Thank you. Question number two, borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? That aging is awesome. Question number three, I realize this might be a stretch, but please just go with me here. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? You are loved. My daughter just gave that to me for Mother's Day because I always say it to my kids. So that was easy. I'm picturing the shirt. It says you were loved. And she gave you the shirt. Yeah. For real. Oh, that's she really had it cool. made on Etsy. So it's, yeah. It's- that's awesome. That's fun. Okay. Question number four. What book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Most often. That's tough. The first one that comes to mind is called It's Simpler Than You Think by Sylvia Bordenstein. Do you know Sylvia? Not personally, but I do know who she is. It's a great accessible, got it right here in my library, short book, kind of Buddhist responses to life's challenges. And it's easier than you think. Right on. What are you reading right now? I am reading a book about aging, which is by Andrew Scott. And oh boy, the, the name, the name is escaping me. So let me, let me pick another book that I'm reading right now because I'm, I can't think of that book. So 
The book that I'm reading right now is Become by Michelle Obama. Oh, yes. I haven't read that, but I understand it's a great book. It's a great book. And she talks about, I think she's 53 or 54 now, how she's becoming. I mean, she is a middle leader who is in a position to really own it and just get going. And it used to be that 53 or 54 would be considered old. And now look at her. She's, she's learned so much and it, it will be interesting to see how she uses that impact or ability to have impact next. So it's a really good. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Question number five. So you've traveled so much. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I would say my travel hack that enable is a routine. When I check in somewhere, I always, I just don't drab, uh, drop my bags and go. My travel hack is I go and I set things up. I, for whatever reason, I just kind of make myself at home and then I go out and I can be present. It just... It's my little ritual. Yeah. I didn't do that until I married my wife and she does that. And now I, I, I feel what you're saying. Like I feel a lot more present, a lot more settled knowing that all my stuff isn't just waiting for me to come back and unzip my, my suitcase. That's great. Mm-hmm. Anything you do in the way of planning, like any special requests when it comes to where you sit on an airplane or how you book a hotel or ground transportation, anything like that? I am fortunate in that my husband is our travel planner. And since we've been together for probably, well, I met him when I was 18 and he loves to plan. So I guess my best hack is find someone who's awesome, who knows what you like and does it and sets it all up for you. <laughs> I'm so yeah, lucky. That's wonderful. That's wow. That's amazing. And I would imagine between how long you've been together and the fact that he still does that, that for him, that's an act of love, I would think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great. That's wonderful. Okay. Question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I've started committing to meditation more. Here I am, this coach, and you'd think that I do all the things that I quote should do. And like I often say to people, stop shooting all over yourself, you know, and for a long time, I, I should meditate, but I couldn't find time. And now I think that's one of the things from COVID. It's really become a pattern that I'm committing to. And I feel like it's going to be helping me aging even better because I used to do it more inconsistently. And the consistency is just clearing my mind. Like you were talking about earlier, really incredible and powerful ways. So I think that's been great. That's great. Any, any specific technique or teacher that you're following right now? I like a headspace because I love his voice and I like to sit somewhere with feeling light on my face, you know, feeling kind of like if you've ever done yoga and there are sun salutations. I really like to do that feeling some sun. Yeah. Similarly with yoga, for some reason, I, I love to do it in the morning as with the morning sun. And for me, it helps me drop into that connection with life and essence of myself more. It's probably just something I'm telling myself, but it's working. So I'm sticking with it. <laughs> oh, that's great. I would imagine, and I haven't been there yet to the modern elder Academy in Baja, but I would think especially during that week that you lead with chip that you've got some pretty cool morning rituals you guys do you should make a trip there it's just beautiful 
Yeah, I I plan to, and I've looked. I know the new calendar was just announced, and I'm looking forward to 2021. Good. Okay, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American knew that each one of us can make a difference. That we can each lead from our chair. And if we show up as the best we are, I wish everyone really knew that because so many people feel so powerless. Or, you know, I'm not, if I hear one more time, I'm not one of those people who is such, um, that's sad to me. because. Yeah, and it's pretty, I'm not often, I don't think, I'm not often confrontational, but that is such a way of avoiding responsibility, <laughs> you know? For, for some people, yes. And for other people, it's their mindset. Maybe they grew up and they were always told, you're not important, you can never do anything like this. And then they start yeah. believing it. Yeah. Or they think, I'm having a hard time making ends meet. To be someone like that, you have to have money. So right. not true. There's so many yeah. amazing examples. So you're right. There are certain people who fall into that category, but I think there are way more people whose mindset is... I'm not educated enough or I'm no. not. No. For sure. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Should I just do stream of consciousness? Here's the first thing that came to my mind. Don't be so bossy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, maybe it's the New Yorker in me that I used to be, to, and maybe it's because I'm a woman who feels strongly about things and, would speak up in appropriate ways, but this, you know, sexism is a thing out there. Um, I would often be told that I'm intimidating. And I just, in fact, I had someone, I, when I was in my coaching program, a teacher of mine who I have still have such respect for in many ways, but not in this way. And I really would go to him and I'd say, how can I even be more of service and helpful to people? And and you can't really see me now, but I'm told I have good posture. Maybe it's all the yoga. And he, would, he literally said to me, I'll never forget it. He said, maybe if you don't stand up so straight, you can be. Like he was telling me to not show up, first of all, as who I am and not so powerful. So, wow. you know, the first thing that came to my mind is don't be so bossy. But really, again, that yin and yang, I mean, also owning your power is important. Yeah. But making sure I show up in ways that I modulate enough so that I can be of service. What I'm hearing in that is there's a high degree of self-awareness there, right? Both for you and what's going on with you, but also how it's being received by another person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, make, that makes sense. Okay. Thank you for that. And question number nine, um, when it comes to money, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned? Or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? One of the most important things I've learned is that money is a kind of currency, but not the only important currency. Mm -hmm. And yes, I, I am not uh, saying that uh, money isn't important, but the research shows that over about $75,000 is the number they pegged. But really what I want to say is if you can pay your mortgage and you can put food, not fancy food, but food on the table, if you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs that security and safety is the most important. If you can meet those needs, 
then the incremental happiness you get from the extra money really isn't that important. And people get so tied up about that. So it is an important currency to meet your needs. But after that, it's really important to know there are other kinds of currencies that people can invest in for themselves and look for in others that may be even more powerful. Yeah, that's that's huge. What have you found are important for you, some of these alternative currencies? Integrity combined with trust, trusting that someone has the integrity that I trust them with my feelings. I trust them with for good advice, you know, being that loving truth teller. Yeah. Something I can hear because they say it in, in loving enough of a way that I don't get shut down. So the currencies I look for, friendship is a currency. And I guess I, I look at energy and currency in two ways. One I mentioned before, it's that idea of the reservoir. We have this personal, we take care of ourselves as a revolutionary act because self-care isn't selfish. And that's this idea that our energy is a reservoir we need to renew and keep filling. And that's for ourselves. Then we have social relational energy, and that's what we use in the world. If I want to be influential, I'm using up energy. I'm going to use my currency, my financial currency, my social currency, my experiential currency in certain ways. So that exchange is really important. And a lot of it has to do with relationships. So I think that, I guess, the relate. remember the first question you asked me, what's most important? Yep. It's interesting as we're having the conversation that I'm going back to, there's this through line about relationships with yourself yep. and others that is foundational. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And you're consistent. <laughs> <laughs> you're congruent. So that's great. And speaking of money, one thing I have done as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to talk with me, share your wisdom and experience with, with everybody listening is that I've gone on kiva.org. Uh, an organization located not too far from you, but does work all around the world, to make a $100 micro loan to an entrepreneur named Chuan in Vietnam. And she will use this money to buy school supplies and pay for the school fees for her children. She's 34 years old. She's married with two kids. So in uh, some small way, I like to think that our conversation will benefit someone far from here that we'll probably never meet. Um, so we're doing good, I think even just, you know, beyond having a conversation. So thank you for giving me a reason to make that loan. Well, thank you. And that's exactly the kind of currency I'm talking about, right? It's not just financial. What you're doing is financial, thank you. And it's bigger than that, right? It's, it's got so much in it. So I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's my, it's my pleasure. And I'll ask this here as well, so we don't leave it to the very end. But if people want to learn more from you, or they want to connect from you, of course, they can go on amazon.com or to their local bookseller and buy. Um, they can pick up a copy of the Middle Essence Manifesto, yep. right? But what else could they do to connect with you or learn more from you? Really, I, can, I like to keep it simple. Um, and it's just my website is barbarawaxman.com. And people can go on. First of all, there's a lot to learn about Middle Essence and all my events and resources up there and the free quiz. I have a repotting guide. So it's all up there. And then there is an opportunity. People can connect with me. I have my calendar is up there. And so people can just put that in, write me a note and we can set up a short call. Right on. That's awesome. Okay. And yeah, barbarawaxman.com. And then you're active on all the major social media platforms as well. So 
Some authors are hard to find. You're not hard to find. I'm glad for that. I'm teaching. One of the interesting things about this time where everything's going online is the CIIS, the Center for Integral Studies, which is a, an accredited school in San Francisco, had hired me to do a workshop around middle essence and the five essential elements. And it's only three hours, but now it's all online. So anyone wow. can take it. And that's going to be August 8th. So on my website, again, under, I think, events or resources, people can look up and, I, and access all that stuff. So it's, I think CIS has it as something like $30 or $50, you know, something really accessible to people. And so they can dig into some of this. Awesome. That's great. Thank you for that. Okay. Well, in the last part of our interview here, I just have a few questions for you related to writing and the creative process. I've said this, I've been saying this for about six months now that I threw away my question set for this part of the interview a while ago, and I haven't recreated it deliberately. So I'm wondering where we should start. And what comes up, of course, is what we were talking about before we began recording, which is that in a way you don't really consider yourself a writer. I might be mischaracterizing that, but but let me let me just ask you about that. You've written a book, yet you, if I understand right, you don't necessarily think of yourself first as a writer. Yes. Yeah. So how and why did you write a book, if that's true for you? So before we started, it's called, right, when you were setting this up and said, you know, there are these different parts of our conversation. And I said, well, let me just tell you, I don't consider myself a writer. And yeah, some people laugh when I say that because I was special editor of one book and... And I'm always like, I'm a special editor. It was, you know, I didn't write the book and then I wrote the manifesto. I consider writers really to be people who feel this, they're compelled to write. For me, I write because I feel so strongly about sharing the message. So I wrote the manifesto, which is only 50 pages. And in fact, people have been like, when are you coming out with a bigger book? And the reason I haven't is because it stops me from doing the coaching work that I love. And I'm out there speaking and teaching. So I guess that's why I don't consider myself first and foremost a writer. I write only to the extent that I need to to get my message across. And then I'm out there trying to, here we go again, be in relationship with people because that's more how I am. I'm more of a relationship person. And writing takes me away from that too much. So I guess I am a writer, but not in the traditional ways that people think about a writer loves writing. Yeah. Yeah. My experience is that I have a love-hate relationship with the writing. And I think a lot of writers do that although our writing gets better as we practice it, that the act itself never seems to get easier. Mm-hmm. And especially that we all have an inner critic. We all to some degree have self-doubt. We all have other things we could be doing with our time. You know, that the act of sitting down and actually trying to compose our thoughts into intelligible, you know, sentences and paragraphs can be pretty daunting. But as you mentioned, you did it, even 50 pages. It's, and it's significant. I, for one, appreciate when someone can take the meat or the most important parts of it and say it clearly and succinctly and not stretch it out to 300 pages or 220 pages because that's what a publisher asked them to do. But let me ask you this. How did you, as a practical matter, how did you get the manifesto done? Was this what you spent your time in Italy doing or was it before or after that? How did you, how did you actually get that done? So it's a little unusual because, yes, I was first in Italy taking this gap year to really have to repot in the way that I described before and came up with the concept and worked on a larger, in fact, my book proposal was longer than the manifesto. And when I came back, I visited all kinds of agents in New York who were really interested in it. 
in the bigger book, which was is kind of, and I probably will do it at some point, a combination of the importance of the stage and the manifesto-ish part with how to do it. So there was a lot of interest, but here's what's happening in the publishing world. They're saying, so now go develop your following and then come back to us and let's do this. And for a while, now I'm much more active on social media, but for a while, what that meant was I wasn't doing the work I love and I was really more focused on the social media. And that did not bring me joy. Yeah, That made me feel more isolated, more like I was selling myself when that's not what I'm about. So I thought, and, and yet people kept saying to me, when is the book going to be out? So I did write the manifesto, which is chock full. There's nothing extraneous in there. So every sentence really is making a point. And people have said, wow, thank you for this, to your point about not stretching it out, just so I'd have this out there so it could really help this movement towards naming this life stage, middle essence. And I thought, okay, if I get back, if I have time, when I have time, if I choose, I'll get back to the bigger book. So that's how the process went. Actually, the age, what's unusual about it is the agents were interested in it. And I ended up saying, I'm not necessarily willing to spend my time and energy focusing yeah. on building my social media persona, because that'll take me away from serving people. So I, I may go back to that. It's actually pretty similar to where I am in my journey right now as well, where I have a draft of a book. And you know, I've had calls with people in the industry who've said, look, there's no shortage of good content in the world. And to be honest, people don't necessarily need more knowledge, you know, although, yeah, people are looking for prescriptive advice. Tell me what to do. They're still going to be in the same basic situation, many of them, because I was surprised to learn that the average number of pages that a, a reader, a book buyer reads is only 18. Did you know that? Most yeah. people never even read the content in the book. They buy it for what they think it will do for them. So the advice to me was, look, it doesn't matter how good the content of the book is. If you don't have a platform. People won't find it. They won't pick it up if it doesn't have the social proof and all this. So go build your platform. And I had done social media for a few years. I had tried, but I, I hated it. It was like sandpaper for me. Mm -hmm. And this podcast actually emerged out of that effort because I said, look, I love people. I love books. I love ideas. I hope this will contribute to other people. And I said, well, let me just go do this. And maybe some social media opportunities will emerge from doing something that I really care about. And this is one of those for me that I, I do as you know, as I've already said a couple of times, because I love it, but it's interesting to me to hear, and I'm really inspired by what you're doing because you are moving forward and sharing your message and your gifts with other people and not just, you know, sequestered away waiting until, you know, this manuscript is perfect and I can share it with the world. So good, good for you. Well, thank you. And I, I want to send a shout out to Maria Reyes, who does the social media for, she loves social media. She's so good at it. We work on it together and then she executes it. So whereas it used to be, I was, it was drudgery and taking me away from the relational, you know, it's the perfect partnership of this is, we're both doing what we love. And she, great. she believes very strongly in helping people through enabling them to understand the stage and how to use it. So yeah, I have tremendous appreciation for what she does. That's great. Well, let me, let me just end. Um, so I think I just have two, two more questions. One of them is what advice would you leave anybody listening with who finds themselves in the situation either of being in the middle of their own creative project, 
or that they have this idea and an aspiration, but they haven't really started. So either those who are in process or those who want to you know, do it. What do you say to people who are at that stage of actually getting their book turned into a reality? Mm-hmm. First, honestly, take the five to thrive quiz because I used to describe it as helping people get their mojo going. And in order to do some sort of project, like write a book, which is putting ourselves out there in so many ways and takes a lot of our energy, you got to get your mojo going. So number one, I'd say the reason I created the five essential elements body of work is because it works in helping people be in game shape, I call it, for what they want to do. Then I would say, have some people around you who make, make you feel more than, who supports your project, isn't snarky about it. You know, we all have those people who say they support something, but we leave and we kind of feel less than, especially when we're doing things where we're putting ourselves out there like writing, which is so challenging, even for people who are great writers, we all struggle with it. So have, make sure you're setting boundaries with the people who in some way make you feel less than and invest in the time and connection with people who are your truth tellers and your supporters, and then utilize people for what they're good at. So like I was mentioning with Maria, I found someone who loves what she does, which complements what I do. So you don't have to do this alone. You know, what are the parts that you can partner with someone on or hire someone for to free up your time to focus on what you do best? I guess those are my three pieces of advice. No, that's great. And it sounds so simple or obvious when it, when you hear it. And when I hear it, I'm like, that is, that is really sound advice. But to actually do that, because I think, again, every one of us at certain times in different ways finds ourselves stuck, especially when it comes to creative pursuits. But there are things we can do. Like, I love that idea of, you know, figuring out who supports us, you know, and who brings us down and being very deliberate about that. So that's great. Thank you for that. So the last thing that I'll ask here, well, before I ask my last question, I'll just ask you this. Is there anything else related to writing or the creative act that we haven't covered that feels like it might be of benefit to the listener? I think we've covered it. I really do. I, oh, well, I guess, all right, here's the other thing that we haven't covered uh, that would I think be of benefit to people is celebrate your failures. So if we did an analysis, and I've done this thousands of times with people, come up with your top two or three learning epiphanies in your life, something that has shifted the trajectory to help you be who you want to be. They typically don't come from, I won this awesome tournament. I get something that's so positive. They typically come from challenging times that when we're in those moments, we think this is awful. I mean, it's almost becomes cliche because we hear it so many times, but I hear this from so many cancer survivors that in some way it was a gift to them because it made them stop and reconsider and recalibrate the choices they're making and how they're living their lives. And for other people, the failure was really a signal that they were on the wrong path and it freed them up to do something else. So that last piece of wisdom I, I'd share is celebrate some failures and see what you've learned from them. And I think it'll be useful. Yeah, that, I love that. Well, and that might serve as really the answer to this final question, but you can be the judge. What final advice, words of wisdom, direction, anything would you leave people listening with? Clearly anybody who's listened all the way through this was very interested in what you had to say. 
and they've stuck around even to hear writing. So we'd imagine they were a writer as well <laughs> or aspired to. But what, what final words would you leave our listeners with? Believe it or not, even in this exorbitantly stressful time, you know, we've mentioned COVID, the economy, social justice, the best is yet to be, and we can each be a part of it. So it's to keep the faith that just because things are dark doesn't mean it's not going to lead to more light. And uh, keeping the faith and being the best part of that that each of us can be is really what the ticket, what we need to remember. That's awesome. Well, thank you for that. Those are welcome words, I think, for anyone who's uh, willing to receive them. And the people who aren't willing to receive them probably stand to benefit the most <laughs> from them. But that's great. Okay. Well, with that, we'll wrap up. So Barbara, thank you again so much for being a guest on this show. I have learned so much from you. I've enjoyed our conversation and I'm really looking forward to the time that we connect again next, hopefully in Baja at the Modern Elder Academy. Yes. Come join. I'm there February 8th for the week. Amazing. Thanks for having me. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.